0: we we'll find our text this afternoon from God's Holy Word as it is summarized and as we confess it in Lord's Day 13. Lord's Day 13. In Lord's Day 13, we confess, why is he, that's the Lord Jesus, uh, called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he's ransomed us, us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we will, f- we will confess God's word under this theme, that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. Those are the words that we confess in, in, the, in the Apostles' Creed. So our theme then is Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. We look at two things. First of all, we'll see that he's God's only begotten Son, and secondly, that he is our Lord. You may remember that Matthew in the beginning of his gospel, it gives a genealogy of the Lord to Jesus. And in that genealogy, he traces uh, the ancestry of the Lord back to David and then a little bit further back even uh, all the way to Abraham. And he does that because For the Jews, it was important to be able to to trace the genealogy of the Messiah who was going to come, of the Savior, back into David. That's because God had promised to David that he would raise up from David a son and that this son would be a very special one who would sit on his throne for eternity as the Messiah, as the Savior of Israel. And that also meant that this Messiah, or this Savior, therefore had to be a true seed, a true son of David. And yet when we read the scriptures, time and again, we're also told that the Lord Jesus was no ordinary descendant of David, but he was also the only begotten son of God. We read together from Romans chapter 1. And at the very beginning of this chapter, in which, or this letter, in which Paul is writing then to the believers in, in Rome, he writes about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says about the Lord Jesus Christ, As to his human nature, Jesus was a descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you notice what Paul does. Paul declares this Jesus to be two things. He declares him to be the son of David, but also to be the very son of God. And So Paul then, at the very beginning of his letter to the Romans, begins by confessing Jesus to be indeed the very son of God. For he wants to be very clear right up front with the believers in Rome that just Jesus that we confess to be our Lord and to be our Savior is the Son of God already from eternity and therefore he's not only man after the flesh of David but he's also God. And he strengthens that thought in verse 4 of chapter 1 when he says that Jesus Christ was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So he draws the conclusion that the resurrection of the dead declares to us that he is indeed the Son of God. That also indicates that during the time that the Lord Jesus was living here on this earth, the time when he suffered and when people really didn't think much of him because he's simply a a poor prophet who was walking through the land and then teaching wherever he went. And so he really, people saw his great humiliation. And during that time of his, of his humiliation, the full degree of his power and his glory was hidden uh, from, uh, from view. Oh yes, we also saw that already this morning. There were those glimpses of his power in the miracles that he did and some of the words that he also uh, spoke to the people. But the true nature of his power and glory really didn't become visible until his resurrection from the dead. And so Paul says, he says, his resurrection reveals the power of Jesus so that it brilliantly then also shines forth the glory of the Lord Jesus as the only Son of God. It reveals the power, the glory of the one who is the only begotten of God. And so in that way, we confess that the Lord Jesus was so much greater than his great forefather, David. Of course, when the people of Israel thought about David, King David, they they thought about him as a, a great man. He was a great king who, under the blessing and the guidance of the Lord God, was able to do great things. He was able to conquer all the enemies of Israel. He was able to expand the borders of Israel to where it had never, ever been before. But yet, the reputation and the glory of David, we confess, pales in comparison to the glory of his great son. And the Lord Jesus himself is very much aware of his own greatness in comparison to uh, that of his father David. And in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 5, verse 35 and following, the Lord Jesus is teaching the people there in the temple. And he reminds them about what was written long ago, about the son of David. And so he asked the people that, to whom he was talking and teaching at that particular time, he asked them this question, he says, how is it, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ, the Christ then being the Messiah, the Savior, is the son of David? And he goes on, he says, you know, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus continues on and he says, you notice here how David calls him Lord? How then can he be his son, David's son? And then you also read there in, in Mark 12 that the crowds were delighted in how the Lord Jesus was also teaching them and what he was telling them. And this thought had never, ever occurred to them before. They heard the rabbis, of course, teach that the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Savior, will be the son of David. They heard that. But Jesus says, but if that is indeed the case, then how could David speak the way that he did in Psalm 110. For David says that Yahweh said to my Lord, my Lord being he who is my son, sit at my right hand. So God promised David's son the power, authority, and the glory, and the majesty that rightly belongs only to one who is and forever will be God. David's son, David already acknowledges, will have such an exalted position that even David already in his day addresses him as my Lord. In other words, David is acknowledging that the Christ, the Messiah, who's going to come and who will sit on his throne, will be much greater than him. And that this son will be worthy of the honor and the glory that is only accorded to God. And therefore David's son cannot be understood merely as a, a descendant of David because his son is indeed very unique, he's special for he himself is also God as David already acknowledges when he calls him, my Lord. Well, in Mark 12, the Lord Jesus begins, really you can say at that point in the, in the, in the gospel to, to expose himself more and more to the people of Israel as the Messiah and as the Savior uh, of Israel. begins to reveal to the people that he is more than just an earthly person, uh, the, the seed of David, but that he is indeed really the Son of God. Now in our confession we speak about the Lord Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. And we use that expression in order to teach two things and to remind ourselves of two things concerning the Lord Jesus. In the first place, it teaches us that Christ's position is unique, for He is the only Son, and the only Son means that there is absolutely no one who is like Him. And in addition to that, we confess that He is begotten from the Father. Well, that is a, an old expression that uh, was used in the early church when uh, the when the apostle when the Apostles' Creed was also uh, written and, and made. Because there were controversies in the church about who the Lord Jesus really was, but the identity of the Lord Jesus. And those who have ever taken catechism, I'm sure that's all of you, uh, except for the younger children, but you may remember that there was a heretic we often talk about in the early church who was named Arius. And and Arius uh, was a heretic. Why? Because he taught that the Lord Jesus, yes, he is indeed the Son of God, they said, uh, but he was made, but he was made or created by God. And therefore the Lord Jesus, they said, is as much a creature who is created by God as we are creatures who are created by God. Well, you can imagine that this teaching of Arius and others who followed him denies that the Lord Jesus then is truly God, one in substance with the Father. And so over against this false teaching, the Christian church said that Jesus Christ is begotten from the Father. And so the church made a contrast, saying that the Lord Jesus was not made, but he was begotten from the Father. It means that the Lord Jesus derives his being from the Father so that he is one with God in glory, in majesty, in power, in eternity. Just that God has all of those attributes. The fact that the Lord Jesus is begotten from the Father means that he is one in substance with the Father. It means that as God, the Father, it means that as the Father is God, so the Lord Jesus is God, and so also the Holy Spirit is God. That's why the scriptures speak about the Lord Jesus so often also as our Emmanuel. Emmanuel, you may remember, means God with us. And so the Lord Jesus then says, Well, that's why David, long ago, already spoke about the Son that was coming as Lord. Because David already acknowledges that he deserves the same honor and the same glory that belongs to God. Well, that. Also sets Christ's sonship apart, beloved, from our sonship. Christ, we say, is the only, the eternal, the natural Son of God. We are we, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. So Christ, he's the Son of God who is begotten of God, and we are created by God. Christ is God, but we are creatures of God. And therefore, David also recognized in Psalm 110, through the Spirit of God, that therefore he must address his Son as my Lord. And therefore, our Sonship cannot be compared to the Sonship of the Lord Jesus in, in any way. We can never ever place ourselves on the same level with the Lord Jesus But as David bowed down, so we too must bow before him and call him, as David did, my Lord. That means, beloved, that that our sonship is completely dependent on the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus, as the great Son of God, he came into the world. Why? In order that he might make us sons and daughters of our God. It is through his work of salvation on the cross by which the Father now adopts us to be his children. And therefore, this adoption as children of God, for us, that's a great privilege and it's a great gift that we receive from the Lord. He's taken me, He's taken you, He's taken us, we who are sinners. And in Christ, His only Son, He lifts us up. Uh, from, he lifts us up into the up to the status of being His child. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine that the Lord takes you and He takes me? We who have fallen into sin, we who become have become totally rebellious against us, or against Him, and how He has now come and has elevated us. To become his sons and his daughters together with his son Jesus Christ. So that we now together we belong to the family of God. Can you ever comprehend that the Lord God has, has taken us in his grace. And made us fellow heirs of all the riches of the kingdom of, of heaven. Can you ever comprehend the fact that he has elevated us so that together, all, that together with all the people of God, that one day we will also sit on the throne with the Lord Jesus Christ for eternity to rule and to reign over the universe, over all of creation. Beloved, can you ever begin to imagine what it must be like to be made kings with Christ so that we will rule over all things with our Lord Well, if Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, then with David we call him our Lord, and we say our Lord, we call him our Master. The Lord Jesus, when he came to this world, he didn't really come in a way in which he he highlighted his Lordship. He didn't really highlight the fact that he came to, to rule over all people because he came in humility. But there is a a point in his life where he gives the people the glimpse that indeed he comes as the Lord and ruler and master uh, of his people. And he did that during the time of his triumphal entry, shortly before his death on the cross. We read that passage together from Matthew chapter 21. There he he commanded two of his disciples to go and to to get a donkey with her colt and to bring them to him. Matthew tells us that he did this, why? In order to fulfill a prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah in his prophecy said this, he said, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the Lord Jesus, after they brought the, uh, the donkey and the colt to him, the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt. And then you also read how the large crowds gathered around him and they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, the Lord Jesus here receives a king's welcome. He is greeted as the great son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord as the the Christ, as the Messiah, the Savior. But you also read that, you don't read anything much about what happens after he comes into the city other than this, and that after he enters into the city we read that he went to the temple. And He went to the temple, what does he do? Well, he exercised his authority as the king of the Jews. And how did he exercise that authority? Well, we're told that he drove out the merchants from the temple court. Why? Because he was angry that they had turned his father's house into a den of robbers. And then you read in Matthew 21, verse 14, these amazing words. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. You read those words, and you kind of scratch your head. It just seems like a, it's just a sentence that has very little connection to anything around it and what the Lord Jesus is really doing. The text we quickly read over and doesn't seem to be very significant. doesn't seem to really give to us a whole lot of information. But to see the significance of what Jesus does here in the temple, we need to kind of go back again to uh, the life of his forefather, David. And you see how often the Lord Jesus makes a connection to the past and to also his forefather, David. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, uh, we're told that uh, this is where David becomes the king of Israel. And the very first... Uh, Action that he takes after he becomes king, his first uh, immediate thought is that he needs to go and conquer the city of Jerusalem. You know that at that time the, the city of Jerusalem was still in the hands of the Jebusites who were the enemies of Israel. And when David and his men went to attack the city, and then the Jebusites, they mocked David. They saw David and probably saw his small army in comparison to their great defenses around the city. And they said to David in verse 6 of uh, 2 Samuel 5, he said, you will not get in here. Huh, you think you're going to get into the city of Jerusalem? You're not going to get in here. Did you know that even the blind and the lame can ward you off? Well, the blind and lame can ward you off. They can defend the city against you. And so they thought that this city was so well defended, indeed, that these handicapped people would be able to be sufficient to defend the city against David and against his army. Well, we also read that David found out about a water shaft that was bringing water into the city of Jerusalem, and and he understood that this was the way in which they were going to get into the city. And so in verse 8, David said to some of his soldiers, he said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. And then you read that later, this became a popular saying in Israel, so that the people would say, the blind and the lame will not enter the palace, or more literally, will not enter the house house here can refer either to, the king's, uh, the, either to the king's house, and so sometimes it's translated as palace. And of course, in this context, there wasn't a temple yet in Jerusalem, because that's going to be built later by Solomon. But it can also be used often in scriptures as a reference to the house of God, which would indeed be uh, the temple. And so this expression is probably one that came into use later on, and perhaps it was also a reference then to the temple that Solomon later on would build. And so, on the one hand, it may be somewhat difficult to know exactly uh, what this old expression was referring to, but it does seem that that after David's victory over Jerusalem and after the temple was built in the days of Solomon, uh, that the blind and the lame uh, may have been barred from coming into the temple. In connection with that, you may also know that uh, in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 16 and following, the Lord there forbid any of Aaron's descendants and so you know that Aaron was the high priest, and his descendants were to also serve as high priests in the temple. And God forbid any of Aaron's descendants who were deformed or handicapped in any way from being able to, to offer sacrifices and from being allowed to fulfill their priestly duty within the temple. And so it may indeed be that after David conquered in Jerusalem, that those who were, were handicapped, the lame and the blind, were restricted in their access to uh, the temple when it was built uh, by Solomon. Now we do not... Uh, we do know... Uh, and also there is some doubt as to exactly what the status were of the blind and the lame in, in the earlier history of, of Israel. We do, know, we do know that later in Israel's history and especially in the time of the Lord Jesus, there was very little respect among the Jews for those who were blind and those who were lame. Why? Well, because the Jews associated those conditions... as they associated those with sin. And they would said this person is lame or blind because either he or she has sinned or because somebody has sinned. Maybe a father or a mother or a family member has sinned. So this is God's judgment, God's punishment uh, upon this person or upon this family. And so, while it may be difficult to know the exact force of the expression in 2 Samuel 5, verse 8, uh, that the blind and the lame were barred from entering into the house, in Matthew 21... Matthew makes a deliberate contrast between David and his son, Jesus Christ. David seems to restrict the blind and the lame from entering into God's house. But when the Lord Jesus enters into the house of his father a thousand years later, the Lord Jesus makes a deliberate point of receiving the blind and the lame there in the temple. And so it appears David, his father, stops them from entering, Jesus invites them in, and he heals them. Now what the text does is it invites us to, to make this contrast, to contrast this act of mercy that the Lord Jesus does to the chasing out of the merchants from the temple. When the Lord comes to the temple, he drives out the extortioners, he drives out the robbers, But those who are afflicted, namely the blind and the lame, they are brought into the temple. And here we see, beloved, the incredible mercy of our Lord. There is no comparison between Christ's rule and even the rule of his father David. Jesus Christ rules with mercy and he rules with great compassion. He is someone that the blind and the lame can go to and be healed. He is the one that sinners, therefore, can also approach in faith, trusting that he will also heal them from all of their sins. And that's why it is such a joy to be able to confess the Lord Jesus as my Lord. My Lord is one who shows compassion Compassion to those who seek their life and who look for their salvation in Him. And so, when we find our, our own life today, beloved, perhaps you may find it yourself mired in sin. Perhaps you may recognize your own struggles with sin and evil in your own life. And we should all recognize that, for we all struggle with it each day again, each one in, in our own unique or different ways. And when you recognize the struggles that we have with sin, then what a comfort. What a comfort we also have that we may remember that we have a Lord who truly cares for us. There is, beloved, there is no greater joy than to be able to go to the Lord our God in faith and to be able to trust that that He will cover all of my sins, that He will heal me from all of my transgressions. And so as the blind and as the lame came to Jesus Christ, so you too, you may go to him as the Lord of your life, joyfully submitting your life to his good and to his benevolent rule. You know, that thought is is really reinforced for us in the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, you may remember that picture of the Lord God in heaven and he's holding in his hand a scroll a scroll that no one is able to open and John well John was weeping because of that but one of the elders comes to John and and says to to him John do not weep for see the line of the tribe of Judah the root of David has triumphed." and then with John see what then John saw a lamb A lamb looking like it had been slain. Standing there in the center of the throne. And he came forward and he took the scroll. Notice again, also here in Revelation 5. The close connection that is maybe between the Lord Jesus. And the house of David. John sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well you may remember that when Jacob. Way back in the first book of the Bible in, in, in Genesis. When, when Jacob, at the end of his life, gave his blessing to his sons. That was in chapter 49 of Genesis. Uh, then he then also connected the blessing that he gave to Judah uh, with the lion. And he says to, to Judah, he says, from, from you, Judah, there will arise a lion who will rule as Lord over his people. Well, you may also remember that in connection with this that Solomon, who was David's son and who had a, indeed a splendid reign, that, that he also created for himself a splendid throne. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, we're told that on both sides of the throne there stood a lion. But we also read that there were 12 lions that were standing on the six steps that were leading up to the throne of Solomon. Well, why those lions? Well, those lions were a symbol of the house of Judah. The lion is, itself was a symbol of strength and of, mag- of majesty, suitable to one who is a great king. And so here in Revelation chapter 5, we see the lion of the tribe of Judah appearing here in the center of the throne. And as a lion, he has the great strength and power with which he's able to take the scroll and he's able to open it. Something that no one else was able to do. And yet there is something striking about the picture that we have of the Lord Jesus there in heaven in Revelation 5. Because John says, but his appearance was not that of a lion. But his appearance was that of a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain. And so the Lord Jesus is not like the other rulers of this earth Rulers who who rule with the sword and with great force and with great might. No, the Lamb has been engaged in battle, yes. But he has won the victory in a completely different way than his father David ever did. David, yes, he was a mighty king. Mighty, why? Because he fought with the sword. And with the sword he overcame the enemy. And with his great army he was able to conquer nations. But his son, Jesus Christ, comes and he enters into the battle in a completely different way. He enters as a lamb, the lamb that is slain on the cross. And so we see that our Lord laid down his own life there on the cross. It shows that he was willing to let himself be slain in order that he might free us from our bondage to sin and evil. When we, when we begin to understand this also concerning the work of our lord jesus then it becomes clear why the catechism then also gives the answer that it does in question and answer 34 for question and answer 34 asks this question why do you call him our lord and then you might have expected that you would get an answer something like this because as the only begotten Son of God, He is great and He is mighty and He is powerful and he's able to destroy all His and all our enemies. Yes, you might expect the Catechism then to have said something about His great power and His great might. But you notice instead... That the catechism says, no, we call him our Lord. Why? Because he has ransomed us. He has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood. And has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Beloved, the Lord Jesus is our Lord. Not because he has great power with a sword. But he is Lord because the line of the tribe of Judah has been slain as a lamb for all of our sins. A ransom means that he is given a payment in order to be able to set us free from the wrath and from the curse of God. He gave the ransom price, beloved, that God demanded from us. On account of our sin, our life lay under the wrath of God. And there was a price that needed to be paid in order that we might be freed from that wrath of God. But what could we do? What could we pay for our sins to the Lord God? We confess, you know, we could have given to him all the gold and all the silver in the world. You know, in the first place, we don't even own that gold and that silver because it all belongs to God anyway. Anyway. But just the same, if it was ours and we had all the gold and the silver in the world, we confess, even that would not be enough in order to pay for our sins. No, the only price that is great enough was the precious blood of God's very own begot, only begotten Son. He alone is able to give His life as the complete payment for our sins. And so we confess the Lord Jesus King the only Son of God, and He bought us with His blood. He made us His very own by purchasing us with that which is most precious to Him, and that is His own life. And that's why we see Him in heaven there in Revelation 5 looking like a lamb that had been slain. Right? He entered into heaven in order that He might give Himself as that great offering to God for our life. And since He has purchased you with His blood, that means, beloved, that you now then also belong to to Him, for He is your Lord. That means, beloved, in faith, you must also look up to Him as the one who has delivered you from the power of the devil. And He is also giving you this wonderful blessing that you may again be sons, and you can again be daughters of God under the blessing of your Lord. That's why it, and that's why it must also be a constant source of joy to be able to submit our whole life under his good rule. The people of Israel, they rejoiced when they were living under King David, and David was their king. Yeah, David was a king who destroyed the Philistines. He conquered all the enemies of, of, of Israel. And David's time and the kingdom of Israel became truly became very great. The Israelites enjoyed a time of great prosperity, and that prosperity carried through right through most of the reign of King Solomon. That was indeed a glorious time for Israel, a time when the people could rejoice that they had a wonderful king. But the point that the scriptures make very clearly here, is that David's kingdom cannot even begin to compare to the glory of the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has delivered us from the greatest bondage of mankind. And that is bondage to sin and bondage to the power of the devil. Jesus Christ is the mighty Lord who has given us a great inheritance today in the kingdom of our God. And every day, beloved, every day again, you may live in that humble trust, believing with your whole heart that your life, that your Lord has protected your life. You may live in that wonderful security, knowing that your life is safe and secure in the hands of your eternal Lord. That's why you can rejoice. Why you can indeed be glad every day, no matter what circumstances, no matter what the hardships you might be facing. But we do have joy and we have gladness every day because my life is in the hands of my Lord. He has purchased me with his blood. So that in Jesus Christ, I now have this glorious and I have this eternal hope. Amen.